This is the Content Strategy Podcast, and I'm your host, Christina Halverson. On each and every episode, I interview someone I admire who's doing meaningful work in content strategy and all its adjacent disciplines. If you care about making content more useful, usable, and inclusive for all, welcome in. You have found your people. everywhere around the globe. It's me, Christina. And wait until you meet this week's guest. You're going to freak out. I freaked out when she agreed to be on my podcast. It's a delight. All right. I would like to introduce to you Cara Defrias. Cara is the chief of staff at the Intuit QuickBooks platform. Her passion for creating impact at scale has brought her to many exciting places, including the Super Bowl, the Oscars, Women's World Cup, and two White Houses. Cara champions small businesses as chief of staff at Intuit QuickBooks. Prior, her public sector leadership includes the inaugural class of Presidential Innovation Fellows, Director of Experience Design on the Cancer Moonshot Team in the Obama White House, and Senior Advisor in the Biden-Harris White House. She does pro bono product strategy for nonprofits, taught design to micro-entrepreneur women in rural India, and guest lectures at Harvard and Stanford. Cara loves cheese and Broadway equally. Welcome to the Content Strategy Podcast. Why, thank you. That sounds like a really incredible person, and I just need your audience to know right off the bat, Christina, that I am just a kid from Jersey who is supposed to be a high school English teacher and coach soccer. All those things that you just said, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, that was never on my wish list. Isn't it? It's kind of amazing sometimes to hear your own bio and just be like, wow, it didn't didn't (laughs) feel that fancy when it was happening. And now look at me. I'm a collection of all these experiences. It also sounds like you're about 110 years old. (laughs) I'll tell you. (laughs) I'll tell you, you know, some days it does too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm really, I'm anxious for my guests to hear a little bit about your career journey, because I know everybody now is like hanging on for dear life, waiting to hear. And I'm also excited to talk to you about how and why we know and love each other, connected not only by our love for Broadway, but also our passion for content strategy. So let's start off. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and what has happened over the last 110 years. Yeah. So when I was negative two, I started out in content. And uh, (laughs) it's funny, I would, I never thought of myself as a writer. And in fact, in high school, we all in in honors English had to write a graduation speech and they would pick somebody whoever wrote the quote unquote best one, which when you're 17, what does that even mean? You know, to then deliver the speech of graduation. And so I wrote what I thought was a really awesome speech. It was right on mark at five minutes because the computer program I ran it through said it was a five-minute speech. But then you had to get up and give it in front of the class. And I gave it in exactly 38 seconds. And so, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that wasn't the best situation. But good news is they didn't pick me, so I didn't have to give it. You know, then fast forward to college and I was supposed to play D2 Division II soccer and I didn't make the team and didn't know what I was going to do all fall. And I was walking through the student center and I saw a flyer up on the wall for a Brendan Bayhan, an Irish playwright's play called The Hostage. And I thought, well, what else am I going to do? 
this semester now that I'm not playing soccer. And that's truly what changed my life. I, I found my voice. I found my presence. I learned how to present and talk and tell engaging stories. And so when I tell people, you know, when our shared love of Broadway, Christina, there's that great line in Avenue Q, what do you do with a BA in English? And I'm kind of the answer to, well, a lot. You can, you can actually do a lot with a BA in English. So I ended up double majoring in English and theater. And then, you know, coming out of college, I had to finish up six credits and I didn't want to do student teaching because I didn't find it was a fit for me. And so I went to the head of the department and I said, listen, I'd love to do an internship for six credits for six months at my hometown paper, which wasn't small by any means. It was about 100,000 people circulation, which back then in my, you know, the early 1900s was a really big number. And so I did that. And that's where writing really started resonating with me. I'd written a little for the college paper, but mostly had done sports photography. So I did six months as a reporter, as a photojournalist. I mean, I had a byline pretty much two to three times a week going out on assignment. And that's when I realized the power of words. And I really learned because it was very hands-on. It wasn't like it was an internship where someone's over your shoulder the whole time. It was really like, nope, go write the story, bring it back. And, you know, we'll throw an editor at you. And, you know, so I learned how to tell a good story, how to, to get a good hook. And then, you know, when I graduated from Elizabethtown College, a great little small liberal, liberal arts college, that is such a hard word to say, liberal, liberal arts college in Central <laughs> PA. That's okay. Um, I can never say operationalize. Oh, I said thank it. You. Yes. Oh, hey, take the W, friend. You know, I ended up doing, because I didn't do the student teaching, I ended up doing instructional design, which is just corporate learning and development for the better part of 10 years. And that's where it really became, you know, I started calling myself an information designer. This was before content designer was like the it term, because it really, to me, was how do you present information in a way that people can grok onto it, that they can remember it, that they can chunk it, you know, a lot of when I went into grad school at Penn State, uh, my master's is in instructional design, and it's a lot of adult learning psychology and how the brain perceives things. So like when, you know, in UX, the cognitive burden conversation started coming up in the early 2000s. I'm like, oh, I, I get what that is. And so I just, you know, more and more as I went through my career, I had more things where if there was writing that needed to be done, you know, people would turn to me. And, you know, over the time I became a PR executive. So, you know, writing press releases and trying to convince people to be interested in my clients and what they're doing. And then, you know, now as chief of staff over the past five or so years, it's a lot more ghostwriting for my principal. So for my boss or writing for somebody else, you know, I, I had the great privilege at the White House to write for the vice president, for Vice President Harris. I had to, got the opportunity to write for Vice President Biden under Obama. And, you know, when I look back at that kind of through line, it really did start in my reporter days and my instructional design days of like, how do you hook somebody early? How do you craft the content in a way that's meaningful and memorable? And it's funny, when I was in the White House the last time, I just left this last July, while I was senior advisor for technology, in that team, the running joke became, you know how there's SaaS, like software as a service? It became CAS for CARA as a service because anytime anybody would write anything, they're like, no, run it by CARA. She'll make it better. And like, it wasn't my day job, but I do love that like people want to come to me and to run something by me or ask me how to structure it. And then, you know, I also had the great opportunity in the last gig out in DC to create a content strategy from scratch because there wasn't one there. And, and you know, so I, I love that even though writing might not be the day job, the full-time job anymore, 
boy, there's been a lot of cool opportunities to draw on to help make the written word better and more understandable and more actionable. So I'm going to ask you, I have so, I have so many questions, but I'm going to ask you (laughs) that last thing you said about a content strategy at the White House. Can you talk to me a little bit about what problems that work was trying to solve and kind of opportunities that it was hoping to go after? Yeah, so I'm sure I have an international audience. So I'll kind of go back one step to a little bit of 101 because I don't want to, you know, presume that anybody... What what is the White House? (laughs) Well, (laughs) so it's this big building on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. that's burned down once. But, you know, for folks who might not be aware, like, you know, every four years in America, we have an election, potentially a new person comes into the White House. So most people are familiar with the, the high amount of turnover every four to eight years in the White House. But what they might not know about is there is a career staff that stays through presidents often. And a lot of them are writing a lot of the documentation for even things like how to create a PDF or how to connect to your printer. So like, I, you know, it's more of the technical side of writing. But when I got there, I noticed there was an opportunity for more consistency in voice, in tone, and how the information was organized. And so I just kind of went back to my old instructional design days and my information design days. And I was like, all right. And, and you know, we used Confluence there. And so I just built a Confluence page out. And as I started kind of whiteboarding, because I'm like, they could bury me with a whiteboard and sticky notes and I'd be so happy. Like, here's how to get to her funeral site, right? From the wake. Because <laughs> clearly being half Irish, we're going to have a major party when I pass. Like, at least that's what I hope. But yeah, man, whiteboards and sticky notes are like my love language. So, and in fact, I'll send you a picture afterwards the biggest whiteboard of my life was behind my desk at my office in the White House. And I was like, God, if there, I mean, when I talk big, I'm talking like, like eight by five mounted with a wood frame. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. But anyway, go back to your question. You know, there was an opportunity for consistency. And so I, I took a very narrow approach of, I know a lot of the building could have used a content strategy and, and there's clearly the comms team has theirs for their stuff that's external facing. But again, if we're looking internally, how do we kind of get our, our literal own house in order. I started with the group that does the technical writing and I put together a confluence page. And then one of my, my collaborators, you know, I'm a very big, like, let's build as we go, but test as we go. And, and again, that goes back to the Addy model from instructional design, you know, analyze, design, develop, implement, execute, and evaluate. And so, you know, as I'm going, I'm building. And I, I realized that like I was writing at a level that wasn't going to meet the people who need to read it and use it. And that was a really good reminder of know your audience and build, meet them where they are. I was talking to a friend. I'm like, I'm I'm struggling on how to get some of these points across. And he was like, why don't you just do like a good, better, best? Because I feel like in a lot of content strategies, you'll see the red and the green, like this is the wrong way to do it. This is the right way to do it. And there's no gray. And so I wanted to introduce a spectrum. So I would write a sentence, like I would take a sentence. Here's what it looks like now. If you were going to take this sentence to good, this is what it would look like. And I had like, you know, emoji queen over here. I had like all these emojis to kind of, you know, mentally embed and anchor into their brain so they would remember what each one looked like. And so we're like, okay, this is what it looks like if it's good. This is what it would look like if it's better, but this is what it would look like if it was best. And that to me and the feedback I got when I started training the teams on it is like, oh, they can self-select where they are. And then they can see what the aspiration is to get to the next level. And and that, it sounds small, Christina, but it was such a big part 
of getting the adoption rate up for this content strategy guide. This is incredible. So it's, I mean, just to remember that like, yes, even at the White House, these things need to happen. So it sounds like the part of the work that you're talking about is almost sort of in the voice and tone, readability, how to structure the content. And that lived online in like a wiki format. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. There was an introduction section on like, here's what a content style or content strategy is. And there were style guide stuff like, you know, Here's what the spell out acronyms and stuff, but it really was also how do you think about it? What is usability and why should you do it on your content? Also, you know, bringing accessibility and inclusivity from a language perspective. In. Oftentimes you'll hear people say in government citizens, and that just gets under my skin because there's so many people that interact with our government who are not yet citizens or may never be citizens. And so little things like rather than say citizen in the content strategy said, say the people. And it's just, or the public. And so, yeah, it had all those things and, and some more as well. Sometimes I like to wrangle terminology on this website, which I know I recognize makes me the person that nobody wants to sit next to at parties. <laughs> but the, I think that this whole conversation about content within the user experience is so critically important because as the term content strategy sort of spiraled out of control over the last several years, People coming back and anchoring themselves in this phrase content design, I think that part of what's powerful about that is from a content perspective, it helps ground those practitioners in particular within experience design. And that's really the lens through which you're kind of coming at this conversation is how are people who are creating this content, creating it in a way that it's going to be meaningful, useful, usable, relevant, accessible, and inclusive for all the different audiences that that need to work with that content. Totally. And it's not lost on me at all that I'm I'm talking about a content strategy that I did with literally the queen of content strategies. So I'm like, Oh God, she's going to call me out for using the wrong word. No, my God, no. Listen, I actually literally for a client just wrote out content strategy is flexible terminology that requires a differentiator in front of it to help people align on what it's for in the first place. So there's like marketing content strategy. There's experience content Mm -hmm. design. There's enterprise content strategy. I mean, there's lots of different kinds. It just depends on where and how you're putting it in play. And that's the thing, right? I think because I've been in UX more or less for probably 15, 20 years now. And, and the way, you know, when we talked about career earlier, quick sidebar, the way I got into UX was because I was an instructional designer at the largest insurance company in New Jersey. I literally stumbled over this team two doors over called New Media. And this was 2004. And I was like, what do you do? Because I had just left Hollywood. I had just finished up my year in LA working in entertainment and I was like, oh, I got to go back to grad school, finish my master's, you know, settle down, get married, all that stupid stuff you're supposed to do in your late 20s, according to society. Well, and, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, what is new media? And they said, oh, well, we do this thing called usability. And I was like, what's usability? And they said, well, we put the things we're building for the company in front of customers before we launch it to make sure they can use it. And I was like, I'm sorry, what is this geniusness? And so I just walked into my boss's office. I'm like, this stuff sounds really cool. I want to rewrite my job description to be 25% new media and usability, 75% instructional design. He was like, I'm fully supportive. If it's what you have passion around, just make sure you're nailing your day job. And I did. So for the next five years, every subsequent job I had, I worked usability UX into it to the point where I finally in 2009 landed my first official UX job. And that was at Intuit, 
working on Quicken at the time. And so I, I'm a big believer in like chart your own course, make your own opportunities. And one of the things I've seen in this whole time to get to back to your original point is we get so tripped up in the design community, capital D, capital C, or design Twitter, or design, you know, LinkedIn, of like wanting to call this thing our thing and make it precious. And let me tell you, when you're trying to get military, career military folks at the White House to buy into a content strategy, you have got to speak their language. And so you have to let go of like, yeah, to your point, is it content strategy for marketing? Is it content strategy for sales? Or like, is it something that they can relate to? And then they can feel like they're fluent in the language as well. And that's where I've seen the most success. And so I, I agree with you. I think the, the terminology is something that we, as designers writ large, tend to get a little precious around. And I think we'd be a lot better off if we were a little less precious. Yeah, I think that what I see and what I hear so often and what I try, have tried to help with in as the years have gone by is folks in the content community who really struggle to communicate value. I just did an interview with Peter Merholtz and he does org design for design orgs. And so he is working to create you know, rule team structures and career paths and so on within these organizations. And he just said straight up, the role of the content fill in the blank person is pretty amorphous to me and is difficult to pin down. And I, I just feel like, and it's ironic because we're content people, but that difficulty in communicating value does, I think it gets in our way and that we're trying to find exactly the right words versus to your point, okay, person that I'm speaking to that I need to communicate the value of my work to, what do you care about? What do you value the most? What hurts the most? And I'm going to connect the dots for you to show you how content is either helping or hurting that. And the the work that I'm doing can either solve your pain points or lift you up and make you look like a rock star. Yeah. Because who's the star here, right? Who matters in the end? The team that put together the content strategy? Absolutely. I'm team content strategy. Love you all. You are my bread and butter listeners. Love you very much. At the same time, you know, and it's one of the learnings we had under the Obama White House. And this was in the early days, you know, the first class of Presidential Innovation Fellows. We were the first guinea pigs in the door on this grand experiment of, can you bring in outsiders from tech and other sectors for a short tour of duty at the White House to help make a meaningful difference? And what we learned, because we tripped and got bruised a lot those first six months, and now there's, you know, Presidential Innovation Fellows, 18F, U.S. Digital Service. But what we learned in those days is you've got to find the champions inside the org who, trust me, have been trying to do what you want to do for decades, partner with them, give away the glory, let them shine, because you're going to leave and you want this to live on. And that's why I made sure with the content strategy, I built it in a durable way that's accessible, that's approachable, that feels like, oh, I can do this. And I'll tell you what, the folks on the receiving end were like, oh my gosh, we've been craving this. Because there's not a lot of time to do like professional development in four years at the White House. And so yeah, I think if we can get past ourselves as the star and make our, whoever's consuming what we're creating the star, I think I think you get to success a lot quicker and it's more fun for people along the way. Because God forbid we have fun doing this. I'm going to say that has kind of been my 
core career value over the years is like, <laughs> let's lift other people up and make sure that I'm having fun along the way. That'll be good. I mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. I like it when people are like, Christina, you're great. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. But, but still, like, I really have been through our events recently, especially, I get so much more pleasure out of ensuring that other folks are, you know, that I'm fueling other folks' success. And I think that that is part of what a content strategist has to, that yeah. has to be a core value for them, because I do think that it sort of like clears the path and, yeah. and it makes it easier to do their jobs. And I do, you know, I do, I do think words matter because I can see, I would put down a dollar. I can see a clear delineation between a copywriter and a UX writer. Maybe a little more blur between like UX writer and content strategist, but like to me, copywriter is like, you're coming in to do a specific thing. So I do think, I do think titles matter and I do think it helps explain, but I think it's when we get tripped up and stuff where it's like, you know what, maybe just chill a little. Yeah, agreed. Well, and I just think too, the lexicon matters depending on which organization you work for and how they are trying to delineate between copywriters and content strategists, mm-hmm. and content specialists, and content marketing and so on and so forth. And I want to switch gears just a little bit to talk about when you and I connected during a very fraught time in the world's history. I wonder if you can chat about that just a little bit because I'm still, I still like the first time I had a phone, I was like, how is this person? <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I think it it ties directly into this part of our conversation. No, totally. And I, I'm laughing because I'm just thinking about how in the span of three short years, I went from this person to like content and event bestie with you, which just brings me so much joy, Christina. <laughs> so folks who are listening, I, because of my experience with the White House, I was called up on day two of the pandemic. I got a phone call from a former coworker saying, we're getting the gang back together, not for another heist. It wasn't an Ocean's Eleven situation, but it turned out to not be terribly just different, actually. But we're getting the gang back together to go up to the governor's office in California, um, we've been asked to come scrub in on the pandemic. And so I got the call on Saturday, March 21st of 2020. And I, the immediate question was, are you healthy and are you available? And at that point, I was terrified. I was living in San Francisco. We had a cruise ship in the Bay full of 40 people with this new virus called COVID. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy and I'm a little scared. So he told me what they needed me to do. And so I said, how long do I have to decide? And he said, we need to know in 24 hours because we're getting everybody together on Monday. And I said, okay. And so I called my kind of inner circle board of directors, personal board of directors, which if you don't have a personal board of directors, you absolutely need one, everybody listening. And I decided to head up. And originally it was going to be 10 days. We were, we were going to be put on the data and technology team specifically. And so at 5 a.m. on Monday, March 23rd of 2020, I got in the car and what usually would be a three-hour drive to Sacramento was about 90 minutes, if I recall, with COVID traffic. And that started day one of 100 days straight of going up to Sacramento and trying to figure out how might we use data and technology to, one, figure out what all of this is, and two, help, you know, at least at the time we thought we could stop it, right? Three years later, you know, it wasn't the way it went, but you know, we went up there. And so I originally had been put on this team to be the liaison between the governor's office. And like, we have this thing called the big city mayor coalition in California, the 13 largest cities in California and and the mayor, their mayor's office. So their chief of staff or senior advisor. And I was going to be the liaison. I was going to kind of be the conduit 
And like three days in that just, that went sideways. And so what I did instead was I spun up an insights team to look at both qualitative and quantitative data with a storytelling lens. And, and one of the things I built on was the president of the United States because it's presidential daily briefing, a PDB book. And so I said, well, what might it look like if we created that for the governor around the COVID data that we're seeing? And so I was focused on what's called NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions. So I wasn't reporting number of people in the hospitals or deaths or cases. I was looking at everything else because what people who are listening may not know, if you have Facebook on your phone, for example, that's tracking everywhere you go. If you haven't turned tracking off, like it, it's, that's how you get targeted ads. And so all that information is publicly available. And so we already looking, started looking at other publicly available information like ticket sales at beaches or, you know, state park reservations or Caltrans, you know, traffic data, who's driving around the roads. And we looked at that data every day. It, a lot of the data was broken down by all of the counties in California. And so we started putting together this book and it went up to the governor's office every night and his senior staff. And we started telling the story of what it looked like, what it looks like out there. And what was interesting was we spun all of this up of, you know, the 58 counties in California. We, we spun up this story every day for a hundred days, but we weren't getting the voice of the people. And I didn't quite know how to do that. And we also were still on the fly figuring out what does it look like to have a website? So it was CA, covid.ca.gov or ca.covid.gov. And like, how are we presenting the information? Because people were like desperate. And so as I'm sitting there spitting up the survey so we could have qual data coming in, you know, and I, I knew that, you know, we, we all know surveys work like they pop up for every 50th or 100th person. And I was like, oh, well, I want to get 100 responses a day. Let's, let's throw it to every 50th person. We, we might be able to get 100 responses a day. Well, people were so hungry to give feedback. We hit 1,000 in the first three hours. So I was like, okay, we're going to fire it to every 200th person. But while I'm doing the, pre the governor's daily briefing book and while I'm doing like the survey and bringing the stories of the humans in, I realized we don't have a content strategy. Shit. And so I said, well, the queen of content strategy is Christina Halverson. Maybe she'll take my phone call. And I don't remember if I like emailed you or called you. I don't remember how it happened, but thank God that we got on the phone with each other and, and folks, what you don't know, cause we've never talked about publicly is Christina in the span of about 24 hours, put together a content strategy for us for the state of California and why that is impactful. Other than the fact that clearly she is an amazing A plus human being is everybody. So I was also on a daily call with the digital data and technology teams for all 50 States. And we were sharing best practices, right? Like right and left. And I was like, Hey, Here's a content strategy we got from literally the person who wrote the book and is the industry leader in all of this. And she said, you can read it and use it. And like, it is not hyperbole when I say what a tremendous difference Christina's unheralded, unknown work made in those first hundred days of the pandemic. And that is how we met. First of all, thank you. I've never heard you talk about it like that. And I'm pretty overwhelmed. I have no memory of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I have zero memory of putting that together because at the same time, we were trying to convert an in-person conference to a virtual conference when we had never even done so much of as a webinar before. And mm. those, you know, and, and parent to kids who were freaking out at home and 
those days are such uh maybe I've just blocked them, but I'm so sort of overwhelmed and humbled and grateful to, to hear you say that. And I think that when I asked you to talk about it, that was not, <laughs> that was not where I was going with it. I was, I was really interested to sort of understand like where the gap was and <laughs> how you identified, like, this is what was needed and what the outcomes were. But I, I appreciate, and I now feel like I set you up and you knocked it out of the park. And now I look like a rock star. Well, Thank you for like joining us for this week's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you can all go okay, home. Okay, bye. Yeah, because, exactly. yeah, that's the thing. It was scary in the beginning and, and we were all just trying to do the right thing. And what I really appreciate, you know, truly was your, you didn't know me from Adam. Like when we have mutuals, but like we didn't know, we literally didn't know each other. And I was just hoping that you were going to say yes to even throwing a bone our way. And you really did go above and beyond. And it was so instrumental. And I think it shows, you know, we, California became the gold star that everybody else emulated for how to get information out in a timely, effective manner. And you never know where the help can come from. So I think the lesson is like, don't be afraid to ask, especially your heroes, because, you know, they might have time and they might be able to, and it it really was instrumental in, in shaping how we thought. So thank you for that. Again, I did not intend to have you on the podcast and say all of those really nice things, but uh, you're welcome and thank you. And it was an absolute honor to be able to serve. And I am sorry, other people listening to the podcast, I definitely do not have time to do that for you anymore. I can't, but you look back and you think about content and data during the pandemic and during those, you know, the 12 to 18 months where it was such just like a constant horrific threat and the organizations that had it together. I mean, I don't think it's any, what was the data project that the Atlantic helmed that Aaron was on? It was like one of the most celebrated looked to data projects in terms of like what was happening, where it was going. And one of the leads on it wrote a book called The Elements of Content Strategy, Aaron Kassain. Like, I don't think that's a coincidence there at all. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because like, I happen to be the person they brought in and like, the assignment was never spin up an insights team. That was never. And like, I, you know, we had a strong narrative in the book every night. Again, the way I laid it out. I'll tell you, one of the lessons learned quickly is because I, I literally had the pen. It's the same way at the White House. Like, who has the pen? Meaning, who's the one who could ultimately make the change to something? And like, for the insights team, it was me. Like, I was the buck stop with me for the, the book every night. And I just remember after one night of sending up the book, which again, we turned around from idea to execution to delivery in 36 hours the first week of the pandemic. And, you know, I just remember when I got the first batch of results from the call survey, because some questions I left into like, I want to see how they change over time. So there was like a Likert scale, but there was a lot of open-ended questions and we read every single comment. And I just remember I put the quotes at the back of the book, like second to last page, and it just didn't feel right. And so I moved into page three or slide three. So the first thing the governor and the senior leadership team read every night was the voice of the people. And that grounded them in the rest of the data they were going to read. And that made a difference. And so I think oftentimes in my experience and maybe in my earlier days in content design and information design, I was looking for somebody else to tell me what to do or looking for permission to do the crazy thing. And now I have enough coins in my bucket. and I'm like, yeah, I'm moving that up front. Why? Because I want to. Right. So what we're all hoping for. (laughs) get the coins in my bucket i i want to i want to say i do want to point out like what you were talking about 
is storytelling and the yeah. power of storytelling. And we have so many people come to talk about that at both Confab previously and then at Button as well, our content design conference. And I think so often people hear storytelling and they're like, oh, marketing, oh, advertising. Mm. And in fact, storytelling is such a critical component, sometimes even more so for our stakeholders and the people that we're trying to, you know, help understand our audiences or our business objectives or going back to what we were talking about, our value in the in the workplace and the work that's mm-hmm. done. And and I just think that being able to develop those superpowers, you know, to you can have tremendous impact like like what you're describing, although hopefully it won't be in another pandemic because we don't need <laughs> any more of those. Thanks well, and that's an excellent point. And I always say it's the narrative. Right, because I think storytelling people can sometimes write off as woo-woo, but when you talk about a narrative, people get it. And that comes from, you know, working on the Oscars, working on the Emmys. I did an NBC DreamWorks pilot that I got to see, you know, from start to finish and how they developed the story and how they broke the story and how they refined it. And to me, and I I say this, I just gave a talk at my undergrad last week, like I put so many stories in that talk because I said, no one's going to remember a lick about what I say, but they're going to remember the stories. And that's the truth, right? And so how, as content strategists, are we weaving narratives and stories into the work we're doing? We are just about out of time, which I received feedback from my last podcast guest that I need to let these go longer. So I will... I'll look into that for the season seven or whatever season it is next. I don't know. I've lost count. I wonder before we go, I wonder if you couldn't tell us what is getting you up in the morning these days. What are you super excited about? Ah, you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that, Christine, is Ted Lasso. You know, you want to talk about good storytelling, good narratives, something that just makes you feel good about life and good about yourself. I love that show. It brings me so much joy. And then, you know, living in San Diego, I get to do my walks along the cliff every day. You know, I just, I've, I'll be 48 in June. I'm one of those people I don't care if you know how old I am. And I just, I, I've had a life well lived and I'm grateful where I am right now and what I'm able to do in my life. And, and that's a nice feeling. Thank you so much for gracing me and our listeners with your amazing, wonderful presence and stories. I so appreciate your joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of the Content Strategy Podcast. Our podcast is brought to you by Brain Traffic, a content strategy services and events company. It's produced by Robert Mills with editing from Bear Value. Our transcripts are from Rev.com. You can find all kinds of episodes at contentstrategy.com. And you can learn more about Brain Traffic at braintraffic.com. See you soon.